said, we're still in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 13, part of what is called often the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse of Jesus. Last week we saw that Jesus intentionally chooses first to teach his disciples servanthood in these final lessons before he goes to the cross. He taught them servanthood both by instruction but also by example as he washed their feet. This week we pick up a theme that John began in the text that we look at last week and that is the role of Judas Iscariot as the betrayer of Jesus and Jesus in that context. The, the Jews could have, think about it, in the providence of God, they could have found some other way to arrest Jesus other than through a betrayer. They could have infiltrated in some other way. They could have kidnapped him at night, all sorts of different things they could have done. But as we'll see, the presence of a betrayer among the 12 disciples was in long ages past, specifically chosen by God as the means to put Jesus on the cross. More on that in a minute. A couple of introductory comments, though, to help us better understand this story. First, this is an unusual text, especially verses 21 to 30, which is what we're going to be looking at, because it sheds light on an area that there just is almost no ink given to in the Bible. That is, how Jesus related to his disciples as he manifests some of his self-imposed human vulnerability. From verses 21 on, he's not teaching anything. In 21 to 30, there's no teaching going on. This is not about his instruction to us. It's about what he reveals to us about himself. And that makes this text unusual. How Jesus responds in a very human way in his imminent and painful betrayal and how he relates to his disciples in the midst of that pain. Okay? So we need to understand this is a unique text. Second, we mustn't make the mistake of reading this text as if it were primarily about Judas, okay? These verses are not mainly about Judas. They're about Jesus and the unique glory that Jesus displayed because of the presence of a betrayer in his midst. Because that's the main focus of the text, that needs to be our main focus as well, so let's look at three ways in which the betrayal of Judas displays the glory of Christ. The betrayal of Judas displays the glory of Christ. In other words, it shows us something about him that is glorious, that is godlike. The betrayal itself does. The first way is found in verse 18. Jesus had told his disciples that they will be blessed if they serve others, but he qualifies that promise in verse 18. He said, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The first way Jesus' glory is seen in this event is that this event calls attention to the fact that Jesus' life and death and resurrection were a miraculous fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. His life and death and resurrection and ascension were a miraculous fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. The life of Jesus on earth was unique in countless ways because he was obviously and is very unique. One of the unique qualities of Jesus' life, and we don't think about this often, but one of the unique qualities of God incarnate on the earth is that there were promises and prophecies written hundreds and even thousands of years ago before he was born about him. 
They'd already predicted and therefore predetermined many of his steps when he was on earth. Scholars use different standards to measure Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, but most scholars believe that in Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension, he fulfilled about 200 Old Testament prophecies specifically, explicitly speaking of him. Now, if you include allusions and other things that point to him clearly but don't necessarily talk about anything specific, there could be a thousand. That's why they say the Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's important for us to remind ourselves that this fact establishes that the Bible is an utterly unique book. Sometimes as people who are people of the book, it's easy for us to forget how unique the Bible is. No other book has verifiable, miraculously fulfilled prophecies in it, much less hundreds of them. Okay? No other book even remotely approaches the Bible in this way. It is so incredible that liberal scholars have actually said that some of these things hadn't happened before they were predicted, or after they were predicted, they happened before. And so the biblical authors were fraudulent in predicting something that had already happened. That's how miraculous this is, and liberal scholars actually will say that against historical evidence. This is an amazing piece of literature, this book we have. No other book like it. There are dozens of prophecies that Jesus knew he must fulfill in both what he did and what he taught. So if you would have asked Jesus what his purpose was in coming to the world, one of his very first responses of many would have been, I came to fulfill the scripture. Jesus saw himself that way. In this text we'll see, Jesus saw himself as a person who came to fulfill scripture. In this sense, Jesus absolutely uniquely oriented his life around what had been written about him in the Old Testament. And that implies his immeasurably high regard for the Word of God in the Old Testament scriptures. This does not mean that Jesus ever felt circumscribed by the Bible, as if he felt constricted by the Old Testament prophecies about him. For instance, he would never have thought, well, I really don't want to be betrayed, but the scripture says I have to choose a betrayer, so I guess I will. This is because he would never think that way because he knew that the Old Testament scriptures about him expressed the perfect plan of his father that were intended to bring him maximum glory and satisfaction. So he didn't feel conscripted even though many of his steps were predetermined. He said in John 4.34 that it was his food to do the will of him who sent me or it was his food to fulfill what God has written about me. John explicitly states his own purpose in writing the gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written, all those stories, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is very clear about why he writes this book. He's as explicit as any book in the Bible. He says, this is why I wrote this book, so that you would believe that Jesus said who he was and that you would, by believing, have life eternal. Okay? That's primarily why John calls attention to so many aspects of Jesus' life and especially his death that were astounding fulfillments of the Hebrew Bible. John rightly believes that when people know that many 
of even the very specific details of Jesus' life, that they were miraculously predicted centuries before his birth, by God's grace, that knowledge can help people believe that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the promised Messiah. Let me give you just a couple of examples of the kind of things that were prophesied about Jesus, just to give you a flavor for how specific some of these were. When Jesus is being crucified, the Roman soldiers are under his cross and they're casting lots for his clothing. Evidently, it was a seamless garment. It would have been worth some money. Maybe one of them actually wanted it. They didn't rip it up because they wanted to keep it whole. It was evidently some sort of nice garment, so they wanted it, so they cast lots for it, okay? Chapter 19, 24 of John says, So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So this absolutely mundane detail, soldiers casting lots for the victim of a crucifixion, it's nothing predicted in the scripture. Twelve verses later, when the soldier wants to establish that Jesus is dead, and therefore he wouldn't have to break his legs to hasten his death, John records, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Okay? That was fulfilled. Jesus explicitly taught his relationship to Old Testament prophecies in places like Matthew 26:24. He's talking about his impending death, and he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Okay? So he's clearly saying, I'm doing something to fulfill what has been written about me. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus, as he was walking around on earth, clearly had a very strong consciousness of the fact, not only that the direction of his life, but many of the specific details of his life had been predetermined eons ago in eternity past and written down as Old Testament prophecies century before he was born. In John 20, verse 9, after the resurrection, when John and Peter went to the tomb and they were shocked to find it empty, John explains why they were surprised. He says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This is a fascinating text. John says the reason they didn't anticipate the resurrection wasn't because they didn't believe Jesus when he told them several times that he had to raise from the dead. He said the reason we didn't believe it was because we didn't understand the scriptures well enough to know that resurrection was part of the prophetic will of God for Jesus. That's how important the scriptures are. Okay? One of the most powerful arguments for the inspiration and authority of Scripture is that the Lord Jesus himself saw his own life and death and resurrection through the lens of what had been written about him in the Hebrew Bible. He was so driven by Scripture. In addition to that, Jesus directly quoted the Old Testament more than 80 times. That's almost one per chapter in the Gospels. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he showed his complete reliance on the Scripture, complete reliance on the supremacy of the Scripture, when with each temptation he cited not his own extemporaneous divine wisdom, which he could have done, but he cited the authoritative Old Testament Scripture. It is written. So leave me alone, because it is written. Okay? 
So if you love Jesus, and Jesus places this astonishing confidence in the Bible, it would be foolish for us not to believe and treasure the fact that it is God's authoritative, inerrant word. And if you're a person who doesn't necessarily love Jesus, you just admire Jesus as a historical figure, you owe it to yourself to find out more about the Bible because he held it in such incredibly, astoundingly high regard. All right, back to Jesus and Judas. Another text that points to Judas' betrayal as a fulfillment of Scripture is John 17, 12. Jesus is praying to the Father about the 12 disciples, and he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Okay? So Jesus draws a direct line between Judas' betrayal and the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. The specific Old Testament verse that Jesus here in the upper room quotes in predicting Judas' betrayal is Psalm 41.9. This is a psalm about King David, written about King David, his suffering and his weakness, and the betrayal of one of his close friends. It probably occurred at the time that David's son Absalom pulled off this coup to try to take his father's throne. Jesus takes that verse, written by David about his betrayal, and he applies it to himself as the son of David. The text says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Lifted his heel is a curious phrase. The scholars aren't quite sure what it means. It may very well mean, He reared up to kick me like a mule. Whatever it means, it indicates a hostile act of betrayal, like someone kicking you in the gut. Okay? Now, it's important to understand what Jesus means here, the weight of what Jesus means when he says, he who ate my bread. Okay? In the ancient Near East, to break bread with someone was a sign of fellowship, of peace, and harmony. To sit down with a meal with somebody, even today, that's a serious deal. That's not a casual encounter. You don't invite everybody over for a meal. You invite people you really want to get to know better, people you trust, people you really enjoy. When someone ate at the king's table, it was considered a great honor, and it was to be met with humble gratitude, not a personal act of betrayal. And in fulfilling this scripture, first recorded by King David, about his betrayal, Jesus is saying that the betrayal and pain that King David suffered from one of his friends Betraying him, that was a foreshadowing. That was an earlier expression of the ultimate betrayal of the son of David, the Messiah, by one of his close friends. So this verse in the Psalms, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for David to write 1,000 years before Jesus was born, was ultimately written for the purpose of predicting the betrayal of the son of David. It's amazing. Jesus quotes that and says, he was talking about me, ultimately. Okay? The text reminds us of the glory of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. A second way we see the glory of Christ in his betrayal is found in what Jesus says, speaking of his betrayal in John 13, 19. He says, I am telling you this now, talking about his betrayal, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is glorified in his betrayal because betrayals by their nature, are generally anyway, terrible surprises. This is a stab in the back you don't see coming. The fact that Jesus predicts his betrayal by Judas 
proves that he is sovereign. That is, he is in complete control over it, and that brings him much glory. Therefore, a second way we see the glory of Christ in his betrayal is it powerfully calls attention to both Jesus' humanity and his deity. The fact that he was both man and God. Look at verse 21. A powerful display, one of the most powerful displays of Jesus' humanity. After he said these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. We see here the human vulnerability of Jesus. And this is not the only place where this is conveyed in John. In John 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now the two words troubled in verse uh, in chapter 21 and chapter 12, they're the same word in the original, and they both mean the same thing, which is to be stirred up and unsettled, okay? To be stirred up and unsettled. So in both instances, Jesus is feeling profoundly upset. The fact that he is the Son of God does not mean that he wouldn't feel some of the same kind of pain from a personal betrayal by a friend that any human being would feel in that context. In fact, his pain would actually be much worse than ours, because when someone betrays us, we have not loved that person perfectly. But that's the way Jesus loved Judas, making his pain far worse than we might experience in a personal betrayal. As we see Jesus experience this horrific grief and yet remain loving to Judas, his glory shines through his humanity because he is the only man who can respond with love to this kind of utterly unique hurt. In addition to seeing the vulnerability of his humanity, we also see a powerful display of his omnipotent deity in this same story. Omnipotent means all-powerful. He speaks about his betrayal in verse 19. We read this before. Let's read it again. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may see that I am he. Now this is one of many expressions in the Gospel of John where Jesus says of himself, I am. Several things. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. He has several of these that he uses, and this is one of them. What he's saying here is, when you see that I knew in advance, this highly shocking and ulti ultimately uh, unlikely betrayal, that that would occur, you will see that I am. Now the disciples, John in particular, he came to understand that Jesus in these instances when he says, I am, that was a claim to be God by Jesus because he's referring to himself by the covenant name of God, which is translated, I am. And the Jews knew that because when the Pharisees heard that, they accused him of heresy, of claiming to be God. So this would have doubtless been outrageous had the Pharisees been there. Another glorious expression of his deity is in verse 27. After Satan entered into Judas, Jesus told him, what you are going to do, do quickly. This is really interesting. Because when Satan entered into Judas, it wasn't just a case of him exercising some demonic influence over him. This phrase, entered into, in the original, connotes a complete takeover of Judas's mind and his heart. 
Judas's uniquely evil sin of betraying Jesus had left him open to almost a complete takeover by the Prince of Darkness. That means something significant here, because when he orders Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly, it's not only Judas he's ordering around. Because Satan was at that moment in control of Jesus, Jesus was commanding Satan himself what to do. This is astonishing. With absolute authority, he's ordering the evil one to obey him, even as it relates to his own betrayal. Satan's response to Jesus' command is to act quickly. So he immediately complies. It's as if Satan goes, yes, sir, and gets out of there. That's what's going on here. So even in this moment when it seems from a fleshly perspective that Satan is running this show, he is in fact fully and completely in submission to Christ. Only God in the flesh has this kind of authority over Satan. The timeline of Jesus' passion was not established by Satan, but by Jesus. He has to grant permission to Judas and Satan before they can light the fuse on this horrific series of events. Just as in the book of Job, Satan has to ask permission of God when he wants to attack one of his own. And Jesus was glorified in his betrayal because both his humanity and his deity are put on display. A third way Jesus displays his glory in this betrayal is in verses 22 to 26. He's just announced that someone's going to betray him. John continues in 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus as Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now you need to know a little bit about Jewish first century dining habits to really get how powerful this scene is. The disciples are almost certainly reclining at a long U-shaped table. That's the way they did things back then. And on the outside edge of the table, there were doubtless a series of couches, each of which held about three people. Now, on these couches, the disciples would be laying on their bellies, okay? So their heads would be near the table and their feet would be back. The custom was that you would eat with your right hand and lean on your left elbow. That's the way this was happened. This is the way the culture dictated. Jesus was the host, and so he would have been at the bend of the U-shaped table, okay? So one of the points is this is not at all like the scene depicted in the Last Supper by the Renaissance artists like da Vinci. Get that? There wasn't any fine china here, okay? As many of you know, John frequently refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He never got over that. We should never get over that. And he refers to himself that way here. Now, it's clear that John, who identifies himself that way, was on the right hand of Jesus, and Judas is in close proximity, right? Perhaps directly to the left of Jesus. And if that were true, that means that Judas was actually sitting in a place of honor. And so he makes this stunning announcement that someone's going to betray him, and Simon Peter motions to John to ask Jesus of who he was speaking. Okay, this is typical Petrine impetuousness. So picture John leaning back against Jesus' chest, because that's what's going on here. And Jesus speaking with him 
almost certainly under his breath in a private conversation. So with his mouth only inches from his ear, he quietly asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus almost certainly whispers back his answer to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. See, he doesn't refer to Judas by name, because when you're whispering something and you say a name, people might overhear that. Then they'll know what you're talking about, especially when he just said this. So he didn't want anybody else to know. He wants to keep this information solely between himself and John. Okay? And so he, he says, it's going to be the one who's going to take the morsel from him. Okay? Judas, we know, didn't hear this. There's no indication that Judas heard this. This was between John and Jesus. That's the scene. And in it, we see Jesus in a wonderful way glorified, a third way. This story shines the light of God's glory on Jesus because it calls to attention Jesus' desire to have intense intimacy and fellowship with his disciples. It glorifies Christ because it calls to attention in a unique way. Jesus' desire to have intense intimacy and fellowship with his disciples. Three expressions here, notice them, a very close personal intimacy that Jesus and John shared. First, as we've seen in this personal conversation with the Lord, Jesus directly but privately answers John's personal question. Now, if Jesus were some kind of mysterious person that was aloof, and some people conceive him to be that way, he would have not answered this question directly in a personal, private way. He would have said something like, well, you will see in the Father's good time. But he didn't. We know that Jesus wanted to reveal that he knew the identity of his betrayer. So why did he make the announcement to just John? Why doesn't he make it to all of them? Why didn't he stand up and say, Judas, my betrayer, has left to do what his father, the devil, has bid him to do, or something like that. Why did, he, why did he do it this way? That would have informed all the disciples. As it is, it's immediately known only to John, and certainly Peter obviously found out about this too, because they're having this closed-circuit sign language conversation. We don't know if the others were promptly informed about Judas by Peter and John, but the point is, Jesus told this very important information privately to just one person his friend, John. This is a picture of personal intimacy. We can miss this because sometimes we have such an exalted picture of Jesus, we forget about his humanity. We forget about the fact that he would have needed a friend or friends. Okay? That doesn't take anything away from his deity. He put that self-imposed limitation on himself. Okay? This is a picture of personal intimacy between Jesus and John because any time you share very important information privately while withholding it from others, that's an indication of intimate fellowship. A second indication of the intimate fellowship relationship one can have with Jesus, not just John, is the most obvious one, and that is Jesus is very physically close to John. Jesus is physically very close to John. John is actually leaning against the chest of Jesus. Now, that may feel weird to us, but if you go to the Middle East, you'll see this is not at all weird. Even today, it is not at all uncommon for close, same-sex friends in the Middle East to show physical intimacy to one another. If you, I went to Jordan. I regularly saw men who were friends walking down the street holding hands. 
that carries no sexual connotation in the Middle East. This does not, however, mean that in, in, in the Middle East you can just go up to any man and hold his hand, okay? You have to be a close friend, okay? Any human relationship Jesus had with people had a unique quality to it because he was sinless and because he was God. But this narrative tells us that Jesus and John were close friends. From the Gospel accounts, we know that Peter, James, and John formed an inner circle. He set them apart on several occasions and gave them a unique experience of him. They were special friends. Tim Keller has a great definition of a friend. I think it's helpful in us thinking about Jesus and John as friends. Keller says a friend, as opposed to an acquaintance or someone who wants to use you, is one who will relate to you with vulnerability and constancy. Vulnerability and constancy. Or he says it this way, a friend is someone who will always let you in and never let you down. Always let you in and never let you down. Think about your relationships. See, some people will help you out and perhaps do very sacrificial things to help you, but they're not going to let you have access to their heart. They don't want you there. They don't want you to know them that well for reasons that may be different from person to person. That person's not a friend in spite of what they may say to you. Okay? Other people will completely open themselves up to you, but they aren't looking to help you at all. They're looking to get something from you. That person's not a friend either. So I think this is a good illustration. A friend both lets you in and doesn't let you down, and that's exactly what Jesus and John and the other disciples, when he opens up to them in his, in his pain of, of, of betrayal. Jesus is showing that friendship to these men, and especially to John, with whom he is especially open with, is a reality. It's possible. Jesus says later in John 15 to all his loyal disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. See, I'm being vulnerable. I'm telling you everything that the Father has told me. You consider yourself a friend of Jesus. His disciples should be. In light of the fact that God shows no partiality, which he doesn't, someone has said, Jesus has no favorites, but he does have intimates. Jesus has favorites, but he does have intimates. And as a follower of Jesus, we should all be striving to be one of his intimates, one of his intimate friends. Now, friendship with Jesus is a wonderful thing for us to meditate on, to think on. It can really encourage us, but we need to do so with at least three qualifiers about friendship with Jesus so that we don't distort this. First, it's good for believers to communicate about Jesus that you are his friend, right? See, that makes him the center of the relationship. It's never appropriate for us to say, Jesus is a friend of mine. There's a chorus that has that lyric in it today, a contemporary chorus. It's awful, just awful. That's completely inappropriate because it implicitly places Jesus on the same level as your other friends. You have many friends, Jesus is one of them. Yuck. Okay? That also wrongly implies that you're at the center of the relationship. Jesus is your friend. Okay? No. I'm a friend of Jesus. Second, John 15, 14 gives us a stipulation for Jesus' friends. He says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Okay? Now this doesn't mean sinless behavior, obviously. None of us would be his friend. But you could hardly call a person a friend who has authority over you if you're regularly and intentionally blowing him off or disobeying. That would be a very strange friendship indeed. 
A third qualifier about being a friend of Jesus, notice the way John addresses Jesus in his intimate moment with him. He says, Lord, who is it? Okay? Lord means master. So being a friend of Jesus does not diminish his lordship over you. The intimacy does not breed a casual attitude in how you relate to Jesus. I hear people talking to Jesus like he's some sort of buddy. John, his best friend, in a very intimate moment, says, Lord. Okay? You're his friend, but as his friend, you're also submissive to him as his servant because you love him. Now, the point is that it's not only possible to be a friend of Jesus, it is his desire to have his disciples as his intimate friends, to establish that kind of relationship. Jesus is God and man, and his humanity implies that we can relate to him with intimacy. That's why he incarnated, one of the reasons. A third expression of intimacy here is the wording that John uses to describe his physical position relative to Jesus. We know he's close, but there's also, if you look in the original language, something very powerful here to describe his physical position. D.A. Carson points this out. The phrase that John uses to describe him leaning against Jesus, literally, that is a phrase reclining in his bosom. So he's saying, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining in the bosom of Jesus. Now that's a strange phrase, but it calls to mind another phrase in John used to describe the relationship that Jesus has with his father. In 118, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. And literally it says, in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Okay? So he's saying, the kind of relationship I have with my Father is I'm in the bosom of my Father. Okay? Close. John seems to be suggesting an analogy between his relationship with Jesus and Jesus' relationship with his Father. And if that sounds weird to us, it is perfectly consistent with the request that Jesus makes of his Father in John 17, 23. He's praying for his disciples, which includes all believers, past, present, and future, and he says, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. If we ever recover from that, we're in big trouble. Jesus makes a direct comparison here. Jesus makes the comparison between his relationship with his Father, you and me, and his own relationship with the disciples, I in them. That's just mind-blowing. No one would believe this if Jesus didn't explicitly say this. No one would believe this. He's asking his Father that the world would know that the Father loves his disciples with the same love with which he loves Jesus. He's known Jesus for all eternity. He's one in essence with him. We can't understand the profound connection between the Father and Jesus. And Jesus is praying, would you help the world to know that you love them the same way you love me? We will spend eternity thinking about that. Jesus is glorified as we discover that he desires to have intense intimacy with his disciples. If that element is missing from your life with Jesus, you need to know what's wrong with you, okay? Because he wants to relate as a friend. I hope that's encouraging to us. 
but it also highlights a couple of implications that we need to close with. First, if as a believer you're not walking closely with Jesus, you are missing out on something that is uniquely heavenly. If you're not walking closely with Jesus, knowing this intimacy of personal relationship with him, you're missing out on something that is uniquely heavenly. We talk an awful lot in evangelicalism about, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But many of the people who say that have a very distant relationship with Jesus. They say it's personal because that's the catchphrase they use in evangelicalism to describe conversion. But their relationship many times is not all that personal. Okay? If we're missing out on that, we're in trouble. We're missing something important. There are several reasons why that might be. For one, if we are knowingly living out a pattern of willful, intentional sin, that kind of serial disobedience renders this kind of intimacy impossible. For some people, it just is so mind-blowing, they just can't do that for some reason. They have trouble. The Holy Spirit will help you if you're open to this. Likewise, if you're not sensing a great intimacy and love from Jesus and for Jesus, there's a reason for that. You need to understand what it is. He'll tell you. Someone has said, if you feel distant from God, God is not the one who moved. There's almost something there. Often, in me, it's a form of pride that I don't even see in myself. Somebody in the body has to point it out to me. That's why we need the body, because we don't see all of the stuff that keeps us from fellowship with Jesus. Okay? Finally, if you're listening to all of this about friendship with Jesus and intimacy with Jesus, and you have no, zero experience of this, none whatsoever, okay? It may be that you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord and treasure. If you want this kind of relationship with God, you can have it today if you'll believe in your heart that you're a sinner condemned to eternal punishment, but that Jesus in his great love took punishment on the cross for you and paid your penalty when he died on the cross. So receive Jesus by faith, cry out to him, ask him to save you and forgive you from your sin, and you can have this relationship with God through Jesus. If you have questions about that, the elders can help you with that when we're praying with you. May God give all of us the grace to know him closely and love him intimately for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious series of truths from this incident. God, thank you for the reminder. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to allow you to become distant. We get so busy with all this stuff that doesn't matter, and we can forget that our first responsibility is to cultivate this intimacy with you. Father, I just pray for anyone here today who is not experiencing this. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal that to them, whether it's in prayer or through the Word or through hearing a sermon or somebody coming up and telling them something about themselves. Father, you can do it a thousand different ways, but God, I pray that you would reveal it to that person. What is wrong? And Father, if there are people here who just don't know you at all, and so therefore they can't have this kind of intimacy, Father, I pray you'd convict them of that and help them to see that. And then, God, by your Spirit, give them an intense desire to get right with you. Father, thank you for all the things that you do for us. But, God, this one is among the most precious, that we who spent much of our lives, in my case, throwing stones at you and rebelling against you, that you have called me into a fellowship with you, like unto which you share with your Father, Jesus. Thank you.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's end our time today standing and singing about Jesus, who is our solid rock. said,